Well, you can take your Bibles and you can open up to the Gospel of John. As we do ask the Lord to speak through his word as we come to it, to see both the glory of Christ as John displays in his earthly ministry throughout this gospel that would cause us to believe, true belief, salvifically, even as we come to this, um, the church, those who have put their trust and faith in Christ, that we'd be reminded of the, the nature of that and why he is worthy of our absolute trust and belief. Look with me here, John chapter f- uh, 4, the very last section. Uh, it's kind of interesting, these 11 verses, and you look at it, and at least to me, it felt like we went through very large sections. Just there was a lot written, a lot of verses on uh, the woman at the well. And even as that story kind of finished up in verse 42 with everyone believing, not because they just heard from her, but they themselves heard from Christ. And you come to this little section, which seems to be a big deal to John in that miracles, signs are a big deal to John, but only 11 verses. And at first it might not seem like there's much here. And yes, he is repeating in one way. I think he's building on concepts that he's already talked about and pushing it forward about who Christ is. But there actually is a lot here, I think, over not only who Jesus is, but even the hearts of men, um, of people, as we look and and discover in this text. But it's short enough, uh, we can read it together. So let's do that. Verse 43, and kind of get our bearings. Obviously, we've been in Samaria and the south, and Jesus is traveling through Samaria back from Judea, the Passover, through Samaria to uh, Galilee, where he is from. And we have this in verse 43. So after the two days, and so that seemingly he stayed and did some ministry in Samaria, he went from there in to Galilee. For Jesus himself bore witness that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him and having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And then he came up again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was asking him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And while he was still going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was alive. And so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again, a second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea in to Galilee. Father, we thank you for our time now as we look to your word, or as we yet again examine another angle from your inspired word on the nature of true belief. Lord, help us to be encouraged this morning and be reminded that we don't need to look to just those things that we can see, but that we can have a trust that goes beyond that Lord, which is most important because as finite creatures, we are left in a world of which we have very little control, but yet we trust in you who has absolute control. So may we 
be encouraged this morning, illuminate this text by your spirit that we might understand and grow in our knowledge of you and our love for the Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, the phrase, see it to believe it, is often used in nature or maybe even I think sometimes in in the sports world as well. But if you were to go on a vacation and you might try to describe, say, a natural wonder, like if you witnessed the Northern Lights, and you'd probably at some point go, well, you'd have to see it to believe it because it just words can't describe it. Or maybe use a similar phrase, you had to be there. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, so you can describe the Grand Canyon all you want, but I'm missing something. Unless I've actually seen it, I go, well, it sounds like it's pretty deep. It's a canyon, right? And then people who've been there go, no, no, no. You, you, if you see it, you would understand the uniqueness of it. Same thing with any events. I watched Husker Volleyball last night, but it's different than if you were there. In contrast, you think of the scriptures and so much is talked about with belief and it's not the basis of our faith that we see. The Apostle Paul, radical conversion on the Damascus Road, he saw the living Christ. Let's stake his claim to being the last and the final apostle. I've not seen the living Christ and you have not either. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, of faith, belief that now faith is the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things not seen. The very nature of faith, and we obviously fill that out with faith in Jesus Christ. There's an, of course, the scriptures, that's what it's talking about. Our culture will kind of use faith a little more nebulous, but it's faith in specifically the person, the work of Christ. But it's a strong assurance. I like that, the conviction You trust these things are true with your absolute being. You're convicted, even though the evidence maybe isn't on your side, you're convicted. I know the word is true. I know, for example, he will return, even though it's been 2,000 years. My faith has conviction that the word is true and he will return. One of the best examples as you get towards the end of this book, and I think I can mention it now because it's gonna take us a while to get to chapter 20. So you will, myself included, all forget about it by then. But then with, everyone knows him as Doubting Thomas. He has a question. He, he doesn't believe. And unless I see Jesus risen, I won't believe. And Jesus' response when he sees him, nails in his hands and his feet, the holes, and Thomas professes, I believe. John 20, 29 Jesus says, and he asks the question, because you have seen me, have you believed? Same issue that begins here. We've kind of already seen it with the the miracles before, but is it that you see me that you believe? And he goes on to say, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. It doesn't say that evidence is going to play no role. It's just to say, your belief is not going to hinge on what you see or what you don't see. And so in that way, believing... Seeing to believe it is kind of a view of the world. It's very empirical. Suggests you need concrete evidence or you need direct contact. You got to touch it. You got to feel it. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. You're going to reject everything you don't, you haven't personally experienced or witnessed. Whereas faith, not saying there's no evidence. I'm just saying it doesn't require 100% evidence. I'm absolutely confident that if you love the Lord, that you have 
repentant of your sin, believed in Christ, that if you die today, you can have absolute confidence that you will be with the Lord. You'll be in his presence. Be absent with the body is to be with him. But I haven't actually experienced that. But I believe, I have faith, I trust in what God has said in his word. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Our passage this morning is going to present these, I would say, two contrasting views of the world with this royal official that's from Galilee. We've seen here at the end of the story of the woman at the well that she is the witness. She's the kind of example of not only does the Lord minister to and witness to and evangelize and save someone eventually, well, you could say at this moment, Nicodemus is not looking that promising, but we, we know the end of his story and he's a follower of Christ by the end. But who are those who recognize him? Not as a miracle worker, not as a celebrity, but as savior, it's these Samaritans. And so verse 42, before we get into verse 43, it's no longer these Samaritans say this, which take the example of seeing them, this white harvest for the disciples. It's no longer because of what you, the, the woman has said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the savior of the world. And it's a short passage like this where I think basic observation is so key and so helpful and so insightful where you might read these verses quickly and go, I don't, I don't see these things. And the more you kind of notice, and I believe every word is inspired, and especially when you get in 44, 45, you kind of ask some questions. Is, it, is this saying the opposites and what are we supposed to take from it? The key here is we've heard for ourselves and we know this is the one this one is truly the savior of the world. You notice it isn't focused on them seeing. They heard the word. They believed the word that he is the Messiah. And that's going to be a contrast here as I think he's continuing this whole thought that's kind of come from Nicodemus, the woman at the well, this issue of signs and wonders and what role do they play in belief. So it's going to draw us back to the end of chapter 2 in multiple places where he's building on this argument and he can take anything from the life of Christ, but he takes this specific story to continue to demonstrate his argument that you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So we're going to see an example of what true belief is not. So it's what true belief is not. And then we're also going to see an example of what true belief is. Well, the setup for the story is verse 43 through verse 45. So it's a pretty natural transition. After these two days, the two days, verse 43, he went from there, that is from Samaria, that's kind of in the middle there between Judea, Samaria, Galilee, as you move towards the north. And Jesus himself bore witness that a prophet has no honor in his own country. It's just kind of dropped in there. I think kind of dropped in there similar way to the end of chapter two when it talks about that he did not entrust himself to the people because he knew the heart of men. He knew their hearts. Well, I think it's dropped in here for a couple reasons. One is to simply remind us that the fact that Jesus is not trusted in by his hometown does not come to a surprise. Every synoptic gospel has this similar phrase. It's usually more tied to Nazareth uh, specifically. Here, it's probably more generally talking about the area he's from, which is the Galilee and, and there. And he's not going to entrust himself to them, just like he didn't entrust themselves to Judea. But it is a different kind of ministry. But he's just simply kind of proverbially saying this truth. 
I think it's John commenting that Jesus himself continually explains and bears witness to this example that they receive him, as we're gonna see, not as Messiah, not as savior. Celebrity? Miracle worker from Passover? Yes, but not as savior, not as Lord. Kind of speaks for itself. When you know someone and whatever that initial impression is, whatever they were then, it's hard to view them any differently, even if they've grown or done things. We don't necessarily like to hear experts that we know. It's a lot easier to take someone we don't know and be really impressed when they come in and they present. My aunt, my mom's sister was in town and I'm a pastor. I have some degrees, but my aunt's probably never gonna view me any differently than the crazy little boy that ran in circles till he fell down. I could have three PhDs and my aunt would still go, it's just Joshy. And that's who I am to her. It's understandable. It's the same kind of perception that he's just going to be the carpenter's son to some degree. Even if he is doing miraculous things, they're still going to, but I know him. I know his brothers. I know his mother. They're too familiar, as we'll kind of note later. And it causes them to have no honor for him. And it's just, that's generally true. The prophet has no honor in his own country. But where this gets a little more complicated is verse 45, because 45 indicates they received him. And so... Verse 44 sounds negative. Like, well, they wouldn't receive him. But then it says they do receive him. I think it's setting up what's to come is they receive him in a certain way, but not in the right way. Not in the way the Samaritans receive him. The Samaritans believe what he has spoken. They believe he's the Messiah, but not in Galilee. And you're going to see that in the way Jesus speaks to him. When he comes to Galilee, they received him, yes, but not in the right way. They received him what in this way? And having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So what way did they receive him? They received him as the miracle worker, as the authoritative figure in the temple. Really, you could say as the talk of the town, the, the celebrity, that's how they receive him. But they're not gonna receive him as the true prophet and the true Messiah. Of course, this is going to give John an opportunity to talk about belief again. Some people call this the gospel of belief. The key is going to be back to chapter 2. If you want to flip there real quick, just a couple pages back. 2.23, very similar statement here. Because in Judea, after the Passover, Jerusalem, he's down there. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. We kind of see it's an incomplete belief because it's when they saw signs, his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not trusting himself to them for he knew all men and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, he knows why they're there. Why do the crowds gather? We're gonna see in John 6, why do they wanna, they wanna be fed? And they're gonna walk away when there are hard truths. How do they receive him? He understands it's not being received in a complete way. And so we're going to see one, though, that's going to demonstrate the right way to receive or believe in Christ. But verse 46 through 48, I think, is a way of saying that true belief is not something first. And then I think we see it contrasted with what it is. And so first, true belief is not based on external evidence or circumstance. And you could say solely on external evidence or circumstance, but I want to leave it open to say you don't need any, as it were, for true belief. In other words, there are things you're going to have to trust 
the scripture, they're gonna have to trust the Lord for that you will have no bearing for, no witness, no circumstance. You're gonna be running blind into something you've never seen, never experienced. You're gonna have to trust him. And when you do, that is true belief. And I simply say true belief because when we think of belief, we think of it as intellectual, the English word, right? This is belief. And even in John, you see him use it where it seems to be incomplete. There's a belief, but a belief in what? His signs, not in his person, not in his authority, not in who he is. And so I just use that to say there's, there's a, you say a false belief or something that is simply intellectual that hasn't moved towards Sometimes in evangelicalism, the language of a relationship, of knowing or trusting. Simply, I believe these facts. Well, that's not true faith. You need more than that. You're going to see it evidenced by the royal official in a moment. But first, you're going to see Jesus make this kind of harsh comment to, it seemingly be, if there's a crowd gathered, he's talking to a general audience of y'all. And you're going to see that starting in, Verse 46, says, Then he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. So we're back there from chapter two. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was asking him, this idea of begging or pleading, continually asking him, come down, heal his son, for he was about to die. And so you have a desperate man. And so you might be shocked by Jesus' response, but it doesn't seem that personal. And if you, this is where sometimes... It's helpful to, in English, we don't, you is singular, plural, depending on the context. So it's kind of nice to know in Greek, this is plural. So the address is going to be not just to him, but to everyone around. And I think probably then to say all of that crowd that has gathered that because they've saw the signs, the ones, the Galileans that have gathered because of what Jesus did in Jerusalem. And so he's saying in a general way to all of them, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. He's going to make a point here. We don't know if the official is a Gentile. We don't really know if he's a Hellenistic Jew or what he is exactly. We do know he's desperate. He has nowhere else to turn. I don't think he's necessarily being critical of him asking. You say there's, there's kind of a test here though. Is that why he's there? Does he need to see it? Or will he believe like the Samaritans, the words that he has spoken. Is he a sign seeker, as one put it, or is he a savior seeker? Jesus is saying in verse 48, true belief is not based on the external. That's things I need to see, evident signs, wonders, or circumstance. It's all about belief. Matthew 16, 4 says that Jesus says that evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign and there he says, the sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah, which I think refers to his resurrection. Miracles in and of themselves, as powerful as they are, are not going to compel belief. Which, if you've been here for a few weeks, that's not shocking because is, does belief come from external? No, it comes from internal. It comes from being born again, regeneration, course you go, well, how does that happen? The Spirit does it. It's miraculous. It's like the wind. You can see it, as it were, the evidence of it, but you can't quite see or touch it, just like the wind. I think he's right back here to this nature of believing isn't just going to come. He's going to establish who he is, and he's going to demonstrate it by the signs and wonders, but it's not where belief comes from. You must be born again. 
There's a danger and there's a challenge of wanting more evidence. And I think here, because you're in Galilee, there's similarly a danger to being too familiar with Jesus. Familiarity breeds content. It's kind of the same idea of a prophet has no honor in his hometown. They're both obstacles to true faith. The danger of wanting more evidence, is that a way of making excuses? Not wanting to change one's life. And then you're left with the question, we've seen it before, is it about belief or is it really about obedience? Because if this is true, and he is the son of God, then what he says when he says, this is how you should live, this is how you should worship, well then he must be believed and it means it's gonna change with your life. And one way to avoid that is saying, well, I need more, I need more, I need more. He's gonna say, no, what you need, John chapter three, is you need a new heart that trusts no matter the circumstance. But also the danger of familiarity. There's just a way in which I think for them, pride is, if you wear glasses and we're kind of getting into the cold temps where you're gonna, it's gonna be colder outside and if you ever wore glasses and they, they fog up, it's annoying. You gotta take them off, wipe them off because you can't see. Pride's fogging up their ability to see Jesus for who he is. They think they know better because they're looking actually, ironically, at the evidence. The evidence they're looking at is son of Joseph, son of Mary, from Nazareth, carpenter's son. And they're saying, we're smart enough to know I can put that evidence, what I see, what I touch. I saw him when he was little, he's grown. They're too familiar and they're not questioning they're really their heart and realizing that, say Romans chapter one, that their ability, sin nature suppresses the truth. The same dangers exist today. You grow up familiar, you grow up in America where it's very familiar to see churches on corners of most streets. You're so familiar with the story, you're going, well, I know that story. And you know, there's other people who believe different things. How do I know this one is true? And just almost because you feel like you know, and I, or I knew someone and they believed these things, but they were a terrible person. And you kind of think, well, I can figure this out rather than humbling yourself and realizing you don't know. And what I would say even more important than that to have what I think is gonna be key here with the official, he is desperate. He has a desperate need and he's ready. He doesn't need to ask all these crazy questions. He simply needs to know, are you the one and can you heal my son? Which of course, maybe it seems a little selfish at first, but I think there's some evidence here of true belief from him that come in the following verses. It starts with seeing that you have a need. Are you desperate? Do you think you need savings? If you don't, you're not gonna be looking for a savior. So true belief, can't look at all the external things. You can't trust your sensory. Why? And we get into the theology of it, right? Because we believe that Genesis 3, we're fallen, we're sinful. We have a sinful nature that suppresses the truth. So you can't trust it, even if you see it. And we see that in all things in our world. It really is about how you interpret those things. And we're not... Infinite, we're finite. And so even our, our best guess, our best interpretation based on evidence isn't completely trustworthy because of who we are. But opposed to that, 
you can trust God because of who he is, which goes back to John chapter one and who Jesus is, that he's fully God. He was there in the beginning. He is fully trustworthy. So true belief is not based on external evidence or circumstances, but rather true belief is an active trusting or dependence. And very similar, I don't know if you need, do you really need a qualifier of true belief? Do you really need a qualifier active trusting? I just use those to try to emphasize this isn't passive. This isn't meant to be that there is no fruit. We talked about that kind of analogy before, like you're talking about justification, that that is the root. You are saved by faith alone. That's the root. But that root grows into a tree that bears fruit. It isn't the fruit that saves you, right? But there will be fruit. And that's how we see the world. And even with this official, you're going to see him do some things in the sense of it's going to, is this genuine or not? Does he truly believe? Does he truly trust? And it's going to be based on what he believes. And then what he believes is going to have fruit in that it's going to cause him to do something. And so I use that as active trusting or dependence. You can get even further for the believer today. On what? On the Lord, yes. But even furthermore, how do we know what the Lord wants? And so it's a true belief in active trusting independence on Christ, yes. But then on his word. Notice in verse 49. There's no argument. I don't know how significant that is, but I find it interesting. He doesn't argue and go, you're right. Or no, I don't, I'm not just here for that. He doesn't try to argue with Jesus. He just simply gets desperate and right back to the issue here of, sir, I don't know about all this stuff going on. I have one concern. Father who loves his son, come down before my child dies. Is that done in faith? Mm, not so sure yet. But he does seem to understand the things at stakes. He does seem to trust that it's Jesus who can do this. But he also seems to understand or think at least that Jesus has to come down to do it. And Jesus is going to demonstrate he doesn't have to come down. He doesn't have to go anywhere. And that I think is where this idea of belief really takes on flesh. Because what he's going to do is he's going to say something. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. Okay, but can you come with me? Just make sure. I'd like you to come. I'd like you to be there. And maybe just check. I believe you, but would you come and check on him? And I think where you see the demonstration of belief is what is recorded here, that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. So in contrast, what do the Galileans seek? They seek signs, they seek wonders, they want to see it. Is that what the Samaritans wanted? No. It says they heard for ourselves and they know that this is the one, this one is truly the savior of the world. And I think here as well, Contrasted to those seeking signs and wonders, they need to see it to believe it. He says, I believe. You said it. It's true. And that's enough for me. And I'm going home. I think I read this as a father and I go, that's harder than I probably would have thought when reading this before. I probably would have just kept nagging. But it demonstrates the true belief because... He starts on his way and he goes. He doesn't argue. He believes that Jesus doesn't need to go anywhere. He doesn't have to touch him. He says, if you said he's well, I believe you. I guess I'll go home. 
Just like the Samaritans, he believed the words of Christ and he starts walking home. I'm going to see here the, I think that's where I go, active. He, he's, there's a root of belief and there is fruit in that he believes it and means he walks and goes on his way. And then in 51, you're going to see that this is exactly what happened and it's going to be confirmed and it's going to cause confirmation of that belief. In verse 51, he says, And while he was still going down, his slaves met him saying, His son was alive. And so he, well, when did this, when did this happen? And inquired of them of the hour when he began to get better. And then he, they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again, the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Probably a reference to the second one in Canaan, the first being the wine there, Canaan, and the second one he did there. He probably did some more elsewhere. This is the second one that he did there. John points out the rest of the story to say, look, there is confirmation. Again, John, interestingly, this is the gospel of belief, but it's not short on evidence. But the evidence isn't what you need. And he keeps, because it's it's a gospel where he's giving you these evidence, almost like a lawyer, but then he's also trying to communicate what Jesus communicated, which is you don't base it all on evidence. You need something deeper. You need something more. You need the spirit to regenerate the heart. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. You need to be made alive in Christ. So he's recorded. You need to be born again. You need living water. And this is the Jesus who can grant life to this dying boy. I don't think that's an accident. He's the one who gives life. So can you trust him for your life? And the answer is yes. That trust though is a belief in who he is. Not just the signs, but who he is and demonstrated by believing his word. Trusting in who he is, fully God, fully man. And then of course his work, what he has done on the cross, both that you have a need for a savior, you're a sinner, but also that he took your sin on the cross and that God raised him again to life to demonstrate victory over death, sin and death. He doesn't need to go in person at all. Just believe his words. Faith has fruits. Active, trusting to me, underscores. It's not just head knowledge. It's true belief. The truth is, we all, I think, want to have every question answered. We want as much evidence as possible. And I think you can get a lot of evidence. I think I can give you lots of reasons you should believe there is a God who made the world. But if you're looking and you're asking for all the wrong reasons, you're never going to have enough. There just isn't. Which hence why you get to Hebrews chapter 11, you get to why is, how is Abraham saved? It's by faith. How is Isaac saved? It's by faith. And of course you get into that great chapter by faith, by faith, by faith. Why? Because that's how they were saved. That's how we are saved. That's why it's faith. That you have to trust in what you cannot see and what you don't know. You can say what you don't know perfectly. You see evidence. But then you have to believe for the future. So I can look at my life and I can look at evidences and I can see the Lord has been so faithful 
for so many years. But will he be faithful tomorrow? Will he be faithful in the next decade? Well, that's going to take believing and trusting in him that yes, he is. What happens when something happens that you don't understand or you go, well, why does this happen? Or maybe you just flatly go, I wouldn't make the world like this or I wouldn't have had this happen. Well, again, it goes back to you have to trust his word and you have to go back to the Romans 8, 28 that God is gonna work everything at some point, maybe it's in eternity, but all things to good for those who love him. The implication here is where it's gonna be every week. And John, do you believe? Well, do you need to see it to believe it? I think this is Jesus' answer to say, no. You don't need to see all these things. You think, well, if I had been alive and I had seen it, no, you don't need to see it. In fact, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You need a belief that trusts in things not yet seen, Hebrews 11. And I love the word of a conviction. It's a good English word too, conviction. You hold this, that it's, it's unwavering that you trust in him no matter the circumstance, no matter what happens. It is a belief in who he is. And when you trust in him as a person, you trust in the, the person of Christ. You don't need to know all the ins and outs and all of those things. I think of the example of if you hire somebody at your work or you, someone's hiring you, they have really no idea, unless you maybe have a very specific job or a manufacturing job, um, how you're gonna deal with things, right? They're trying to hire you based on character or based on um, maybe what you're gifted at or what you've been trained in. But let's say if you have especially a job where there's a lot of creative and a lot of things changing and fast paced, they're trusting you that you will make the right decisions. Well, it's an inferior analogy to, to Christ, but I trust in him that I trust him and I know he'll take care of everything no matter what it could be from the worst thing you could think of to the things that maybe don't matter quite as much. Either way, you can trust him that he is gonna do what glorifies his father and ultimately what is best for you because it's true if you are the one who loves him. You're just not gonna know the twists, the turns of the rest of your life. You just don't know where it's gonna be next year, next decade. But the promise is because you know who Jesus is, you can trust him in the unknowns, which of course, that's what you need. You don't need so much help with the things you do know or the things that have already happened. It's the things in the future that you don't know. That's where you need to trust in him and know that he's worthy of your complete trust. I think of this as an implication for the way we live as believers in this world. And you can go all the way back to the garden, Genesis chapter three, and you go, well, what's at the root of the fall? And it really does seem to be Satan asking the question, is it true? Are you really gonna die, Eve? It's an issue of belief. It's an issue of trust. And I think there's a sense in which every sin is going to be an issue of unbelief. We don't trust that God's way is better. And so I think John, I think the scripture's just calling you to, we use the term, give your life to Christ or believe in him. That is trust in his work as your sole means of salvation. And that's true. But even as you are saved, even as you live out as a Christian, you still deal with this with 
the fruit issue of sanctification. So it's not gonna determine whether you're saved or not because that's based on what Christ has done. But as you walk out your Christian life, do you still think his way is the best way even when you don't think it's the best way? You think this is more pleasurable, this is more fun. Or do you trust his way is better? Which comes down to the same issue of salvation in the sense that it comes down to do you trust his words? You have an example of Samaritans, they trust his words. You have an example of the royal official who trusts his words. But you also have the example of those who say, hey, I don't know, I need a little more evidence. Well, we wanna be those who trust the Lord in everything that we do. So let me just leave with you with this question as you think of your own life. What are those areas where you gotta say, you know what? I need to trust the Lord in those areas. Even if I don't like it, I don't want it. Even if I don't understand it. I'm gonna believe, I'm gonna trust, and I'm gonna walk by faith and live out what he has called you to do in his word, which of course presupposes that we're in his word, we're growing in his word, and we're applying it to our lives. I pray that's true for you and your life and your family. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can come this morning see this example of a miracle, but yet done in such a way where it has such an interesting effect. It's a sign itself, but with a reminder that you don't need it, which is good for us because we are on the other side of these things, the other side of the resurrection as your church And that we are those that Jesus is speaking of to Thomas. That blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. We may want more evidence. We may want to see more things. We may want to have, hey, I wish I would have been there. But let us remember that there is a privileged place for those who have not seen. And a true test of do we love you? Do we trust you? May this be a reminder of who Jesus is and the evidence even here that he is the son of God with power to save, power to give life. And remind ourselves, this is who we put our trust in who has saved us. We just ask these things in your son's name. Amen.